0: Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, back from a little bit of a summer hiatus. But uh, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I'm really excited about this one, and I'm, uh, I am I want to get to it straight away. But before I do that, if I could uh, beg your indulgence, um, I have – now, I don't ask a lot of you people. But uh, I do have a, uh, a little request. I have moved – I've gone away from the website that I've normally – kept up for this show for the last few years and moved to a new service called Authory, A-U-T-H-O-R-Y. Uh, and that's a, a spot that collects not only the shows that I produce, uh, but also any writing that I might do across the internet. It all gets housed in one place and it's much easier for me to take care of everything that way and much good, much better for my sanity and mental health. So I would uh, appreciate it if you went over there and if you click on that, you can hit subscribe and just get a free little email newsletter on Tuesday days, any week that I have something come out, you'll get a little reminder and you can sort of get a reminder about the show and anything else I happen to be doing uh, uh, in that way. And so uh, my little request from me to you. So, uh, but let me kind of move on to the show right away here. Um, I want to welcome back to the show, Andrew Pesson. Andrew, how you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. How about you, Danny?
0: I am doing actually uh, really well. It's been uh, it's been nice to be back to work. Uh, it's uh, it's gone well so far, and I'm actually feeling pretty good about life. Uh, you know, eighty five percent of the time, which is awesome. And, and so, an
1: enormous uh, percentage compared to the history of humanity. So, yes, that's true. I realize my privilege, right? No, <laughs> which exactly. is a,
0: related to the topic today. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and so, uh, you, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you will remember Andrew was on the show a couple of years ago to talk about his. Book of uh, Philosophy called the Jewish God Question, which I one of my favorite um, conversations I've had on the show, where Andrew talked us through sort of the history of Jewish thinking about God over the centuries, and uh, and it was really uh, a really. Illuminating book to read and a great Thank conversation you. to have. <laughs> and Thank so, uh, and I was uh, more than thrilled when Andrew reached out to me because he has a novel out now. Uh, and I'm not only thrilled, but jealous, I have to say, that someone is uh, capable of doing both things. But uh, he has a new uh, book called Nevergreen or Academentia is the uh, subtitle of the book and it's a short novel of about 160 170 pages and it, it's really interesting and provocative and thought-provoking and entertaining and and i really uh, am grateful for andrew for reaching out to me to share the book with me um, it's published by open books uh, who i also thank for uh, uh, putting this out into the world and uh, i just want to uh, welcome andrew to talk about this Uh, This novel. So, uh, what? Let me just kind of begin with um, you have. This is not your first
1: book. Not not your first novel. It's neither my first book nor my first novel. So, uh, I've done um, uh, a bunch of philosophy books. I do some philosophy books for the general reader, in addition to my academic work, um, which is mostly in the history of philosophy. (coughs) Uh, This is my third novel, Uh, and uh, you know, my my dream probably would be to be a novelist if I could make a living as a novelist. Um, So. But uh, that's a very hard thing to do, uh, as it's hard to make a living as a philosopher, too. Um, But so this is novel number three. And um, I've had a lot of fun with this one. They say, write what you know. And so this one's about the Academy. And the Academy is unfortunately something I know. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, very exciting to write this one. Uh, and I already have plans for the fourth one, so I'm starting to think about that for maybe uh, start writing that next year.
0: That's terrific. I was just thinking of how funny it is that um, you're trying to make a career out of two things that are...
1: (laughs) Perhaps the most difficult things. Oh, no, well, the third one was I would also have been a musician. If, if I, there know, we go. So like, you know, and maybe if you put together three things you can't make a living doing, you can make a living. I think that's, uh, that's the goal. But I did give up on the music thing quite a ways back uh, as a potential source of revenue. You
0: want to run a little coffee shop or a bed and breakfast, too, next Friday, right? And so, yeah. oh, you know what?
1: My wife, that's my wife's dream is to run. She make, does pottery. And so her dream is to like have a cafe that uses all of her plates and mugs that she makes at which I would perform as the musician while holding <laughs> philosophy discussions and, and fiction readings, right? So
0: Hey it's good to dream right it's good to dream <laughs> this it's is this dream. is what makes us human um well i i'm excited to talk about this book for a couple of reasons uh first of all that i've always been a big sort of fan of the campus novel uh, as an i'm an english professor so it's i'm sort of the ideal audience for such things of course um but i actually coincidentally enough did my dissertation on um jewish campus novels right and i know that there's a That's a right. a, right. a jewish theme that kind of subtly runs through this book that I do want to sort of um, talk about at some point in this, uh, in this. So it's kind of, it was a weird coming together of a lot of my interests um, including Kafka. And so I I don't know if that was purposeful, <laughs> but uh, no, I definitely want to talk purposeful. about Kafka.
1: Like, the, the Kafka-esque influence is absolutely <laughs> yes. deliberate and we will talk about that.
0: Yeah, it was kind of unmistakable. So, um, and so l- let me kind of just begin. Um, so the novel is uh, just to give a very short um, plot summary uh, or story summary. It's about a, a a a man who ends up kind of on an island that is a, a college campus that is kind of the most extreme version of what we might characterize as quote unquote woke uh, a, the sort of progressive uh, ideas of education and it just sort of takes all of those oh, those kind of sentiments that we have about whatever particular uh, aspects there are of, uh, you know, progressive politics and explodes them out to these kind of absurd ends. Right. And and so um, it's a, it's a very kind of dark and almost horrific. It does actually get into, I would say horror uh, at some point in the, uh, in the conclusion of the book. But uh, let me just ask you about your inspiration for writing it. You're clearly coming at it from a kind of critical uh, perspective on these Debates that we have about politics and higher education.
1: All right. So thank you. Let me just add a little bit to your plot summary. Sure. Oh, yeah. We definitely want to talk about the genre of horror because yeah. you're not the first person to suggest that, that there's an element of horror in it. Um, and then my, the question, and then I'll comes to the question of my inspiration. So uh, uh, it's a middle-aged man, kind of a middle-aged physician and a little bit of a midlife funk who basically, uh, by a chance occurrence, gets this invitation to come speak at this college. right? So I think it's really important that it's an outside person who's invited in mm-hmm. to give a sense of, you know, maybe what this the, this liberal arts college scene looks like to outside, quote unquote, objective eyes. And uh, he, it's, it is, again, this is his sort of dream. He, just like I kind of wish I were a novelist and a musician, you know, he had always thought about being an academic, but for various reasons, that's not the way his life went. And so he comes to this campus and he gives this talk. As it turns out, nobody shows up for his talk. He's, he lectures to an empty auditorium, but he you know, doesn't want to give up this opportunity to speak at a campus. So even though no one shows up, he just gives his talk to the empty, empty auditorium. And then despite the fact that nobody shows up, that talk becomes the uh, focus of a, a huge firestorm of controversy on the campus. And as Danny nicely mentioned, as it turns out, this campus is a secluded island campus that previously, in the previous century, had been a lunatic asylum, basically, <laughs> and gotten converted into a campus. And so he's trapped on this island, um, and as his unattended talk becomes the center of a firestorm of controversy, and it's the story of his effort to escape, and I'll just say to avoid spoilers, at least for now, with potentially fatal consequences, this, this talk, right? So. Um, And you can see where the horror element will will come in, because he's trapped on an island, basically, where the lunatics are running the asylum. That's basically the picture we have here. And they're after him, because he has brought hate, with a capital H, to their campus, at least in their minds.
0: Yes. that's... And he's completely confused about what he possibly could have said. And he's unable to get any answers um, about specifics. (laughs) That's
1: (laughs) that's right. There's the Kafkaesque. I'll talk about that briefly too right now, which is that, um, you know, no one showed up for the talk, so they don't know what he said, but it didn't really matter what he said. It's what he represents in the minds of his accusers, basically. And they've decided he represents hate hate with a capital H. Um, and it's ultimately disconnected to the content of anything he said. In fact, his little side hobby, he's interested in art history, in particular the history of you know, like medical things like surgeries and dissections and, me- and artistic representation of these. And he, he's he been doodling a bunch of pages about a famous painting, the um, Dr. Topes, the dissection of a corpse by Dr. Tulp, or something. Is it a Rembrandt? I've now forgotten myself. <laughs> a, fa- a real painting, right? So... So his talk is about art history and medicine and things like that. How could that be offensive to anybody? But that is, of course, maybe the essence of the satire here. And Danny, you you also, you put your finger right on it um, directly, you know, when you said exaggeration. So, you know, what is satire? Satire, at least in my view, or at least as I'm using it here, um, you take something and you sort of blow it up. You enlarge it. You magnify it. Um, to the point where it's no longer literally true. So the, the scenario that's being described on this novel, I'm not saying any campuses look like that today, but when you enlarge it in that way, at least the goal is, you're taking some sort of truth which is buried there, and when you enlarge it, you expose that truth, you make it visible. And I suppose if you wanted to simplify and summarize it, the truth is something's going on on campuses today, in the ideologies that are governing people on campus today, that is unhinged, irrational, disconnected from reality, right? That's, that's the deeper point, put a little bit too simply here. And you see that when you sort of blow it up big, and you see how unhinged it is when they are after him without ever having even heard what he said, right? And the, yeah, and the Kafkaesque, part of the Kafkaesque element, I'm sorry, part of the Kafkaesque element is, of course, he doesn't know what he said and he doesn't understand why are they, after, why do they hate him, why, why are they after him, and he can never get answers from anybody. So that, of course, is directly inspired by, by The Trial, Kafka's great novel, which I did reread a few years ago in preparation for writing this book uh, to try to, you know, imitate the way Ka- the master Kafka pulls this off that that this person in The Trial Spends the rest of his life fighting these charges, and he's never even told what the charges are. Like he's arrested one day, and he fights these charges, and uh, etc. So there's something similar going on here because, from the perspective of this outside person who is really a a, a very vanilla, inoffensive sort of guy, I think by many ordinary standards, um, it's literally incomprehensible to him why he what the problem is, like what he has done. Yeah. So. Yes, yeah, so that's the Kafka bit. I didn't quite get to the question, but uh, you, you're you're eager to jump in as you should. So, well, I just
0: want to accentuate the fact that in Kafka style, the main character's name is J, right? Uh, we have uh, that's famous. Kafka will famously have uh, one letter, one initials as character names, just, right?
1: And uh, Joseph K. is, of course, Joseph K. Period yeah. is the um, is the, the protagonist there yeah uh, you'll you'll discover you know i had a lot of fun constructing the book because it's something that if you're interested hopefully it reads nicely just on the surface of it but it's something that can be decoded there's a lot of allusions all over the place and there's at least i was aiming for multiple levels of meaning so that's one tiny one the main character goes by his initial j uh, definitely a nod to Kafka without question
0: yeah uh, yeah
1: that 's one among several reasons for that initial, so uh, yes, and I'm I would happy.
0: definitely want to get yeah. to that <laughs> um it was, one interesting thing, and i 'll get to this later when we talk about the sort of subtle Jewish themes is you 've written a sort of document that goes along with this, and i don 't know how widely distributed that's going to be along with the novel, but it does sort of um talk about some of your intentions um to explore ideas of anti-Semitism subtly in this book. And so I'll, I'll bracket that for now. We'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. Um, but I just want to say also that um, I also saw the castle. I, mean, I feel like this is an, almost an amalgam of the trial in the castle. Maybe it's the isolated location of this. But, yeah, I do think – and there's the sort of uh, trying to – how do you uh, navigate this – Endless bureaucracy that has no real logic and nobody's really in charge of it, but uh, everyone just sort of follows the role that they right. imagine for themselves in it, right? And so I think Absolutely. that that's very—it's yeah. the, the the influence is very very clear and very well done. I will also and, add,
1: and that will go back to now the good segue to answering the question you actually asked a minute <laughs> right. So I actually wrote it down so I'd remember to come back to it, which is you know the question of the bureaucracy. Um, you know that's an aspect. You, but you asked what ins, what was my inspiration for the book ultimately. So I've been a college professor for almost thirty years now, and small liberal arts colleges. Um, and so I just uh, you know I'm immersed in the life of the college, and uh, I also uh, I serve as campus bureau editor for an organization called the the Algemeiner, which is a, an outlet news outlet that focuses on Jewish matters and Israel related matters so as campus bureau editor I, I i just watch campuses i keep a close eye on campuses and i've been watching what's been going on over there for a good number of years starting with the the serious turn towards hostility towards israel which we don't have to talk about unless you want um, and campuses uh, and really this thing called cancel culture um, which i think in the modern era really starts with the hostility to israel because the anti-zionist movement on campus really is a version of canceling Israel and representation of Israel from campuses. That, that starts in earnest, the modern version of it anyway, in the early 2000s. Uh, and it's become certainly in the last five to eight years or something like that, it's become this more general thing, cancel culture, which I would love to talk about at length, um, where instead of disagreeing with somebody um, on a campus, it's increasingly common that one must Cancel that person, and to cancel someone is to eliminate their voice or silence them, and maybe even eliminate them from campus altogether. And I can go through lots of examples of that. So what I'm suggesting is today's cancel culture, which has very broad scope, um, meaning that uh, many individuals who are seen as conservative or you know right of center can be targeted for cancellation. It also goes the opposite direction. So there are definitely people left leftist progressivists who are get cancelled by by more right elements so so the phenomenon is global lots of people are getting cancelled now but i think you can trace the straight line back to the cancellation of israel in the early 2000s um so that's this cancel culture that i've been watching and i and i watch it with horror and dread i think there's so much that's wrong with it on so many levels not just when the left is canceling the right but you know also when the right is canceling left and certainly when everybody's canceling israel like i just think this whole concept of cancellation is does not fit with what the mission of a university ought to be so this is what i've been watching for a number of years and uh you know and part of what's gone on on campuses as well and this is the connections, to like the castle and also the trial um uh, college campuses have just become so administration heavy yeah uh, and i think that's that's sort of well documented there are just there's so much bureaucracy in a uh, college campus it actually fits in with cancel culture, and I'm happy to elaborate on that a little bit. But we now have a system where, you know, I don't know if colleges ever were this, but this is sort of the ideal conception of what the university might have been that it's a place where, you know, a young mind comes to be trained and developed, but not indoctrinated, right? That, that's sort of the, the ideal and the image. And where um, the young mind would come to a campus because the, the let's say the faculty on campus primarily they were seen as having a certain amount of expertise. They've been studying some subject for many years. They've been doing scholarship on that subject for many years, maybe also teaching for many years, right? And so we had this model where students came to learn from professors because professors were seen as knowing more than what the students learn. And uh, not as indoctrinating, but as training. Uh, training, let's say, critical thinking reasoning skills, etc., etc. But somehow in the last 20 years, it's morphed into a very different model where, um, uh, you know, I trace this back, this, this headline from Jonathan Haidt's book a few years ago, if you were familiar with that, like, The Coddling of the American Mind, where students were now seen as rather than having to defer to professors and even learn things that might be difficult or uncomfortable or that would challenge their views, we now seem to have this idea where students, by and large, are the customers, and the customers are always right, and these customers in particular are very sensitive and fragile, and they, they can't hear things that may dislodge them from their status quo, whatever that is. And that is reflected in the blossoming bureaucracy on colleges because you have so many deans whose job it is now is to take care of the well-being of, their, of students, mm. right? So many deans take care of the well-being of students. There used to be a few deans because you don't need that many deans for purely academic reasons. But now you, if we need to take care of the well-being of students, we're not really training and educating them we are taking care of them now. Um, and so that's produced as very bloated b- bureaucracy, which is one thing I'm mocking in the novel, which is very Kafkaesque as well, because you know, the character gets caught up in the, the labyrinth, labyrinth? labyrinth-like structure of this bureaucracy. And, um, you know, but it's all connected to cancel culture, because yeah. coddled students, fragile-sensitive students, can't tolerate hearing uncomfortable things that might rock their world. And so they have to silence them. So it all fits together.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting um, that I would trace it um, even one step further from the cultural thing to the sort of economic thing. You mentioned treating students like customers, right? And so all of these new positions are a form of marketing uh, for uh, potential students, right? And, And I do think that um, even beyond the kind of culture war aspect of this, there is sort of an economic imperative that's driving that culture war. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I Absolutely. think, that, and then I, you know, I'm very influenced by Bill Redding's book from the early 90s, 94, I think, called The University in Ruins, where he sort of talks about um, these sorts of uh, that, that transition of the college into this more uh, adapting to this kind of uh, economic environment. And I think that that was a, a very influential book with the way I think about these things. And I'll I just want to, like, uh, for my listeners, and I have, I have a, a wide spectrum of listeners ideologically, which is one thing I love about this show. Some of the things you're saying are going to sort of identify you as a person on one side of a debate that they have a position in, right? And, and so, um, I, I just want to say that, uh, I think that what you're, saying, first of all, it, because it's an exaggeration, in many ways, it seems like you're on the opposite end of a political debate that the Netflix series, The Chair, is, is on, right? right? That That is also an exaggeration, but from right. very liberal concerns about campus culture, about white men and, and all that sort of thing, right? And, right. and, and I feel like Weirdly, I was thinking a lot of the chair as I was reading this. It's like you're taking an opposite angle at, um, really, uh, and using the form of exaggeration and satire, uh, to explore these concerns, right? And, and I do think that it, it is worth cons- uh, exploring. And, and I really, I did, it was thought provoking the way that you kind of, Ex- elaborated on many of the terms we use in this debate and, and blew them up into absurdity. I thought that it was, uh, it was Thank kind you. of very you. interesting, you,
1: know, you mentioned the chair, the chair came out like literally like the same day. My novel came out. <laughs> so clearly there's interest in the cultural zeitgeist or something in the subject. And I, I, I thought actually wrote a little review of the chair. I thought it was, you know, we could talk about that separately, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought they were just trying to take on too many things at the same time in that short, short little series you know but the part that obviously connects to my novel is there's the attempt to cancel the professor because he jokingly makes a nazi yeah. salute but you know i i would have to watch it again closely to de- to resolve what i thought was an ambiguity there which is it wasn't 100% clear to me whose side the show was on with yeah. respect to that particular episode right so um my own inclinations, you know, I think the only people who should be canceled are really so outrageously extremist and inciting of violence that it's literally unambiguous to 99.9% of people that that doesn't belong on campus. So if yeah. someone is literally inciting violence or p- perpetrating violence, okay, I get that. That has to be canceled. But you know, go on, go
0: on. Well, I was just going to say in your book, I, one of the things I found most interesting about it, and, and I think that there's a, you're making a claim about the results of this, of this, whatever, uh, curation uh, of representation that we have on campuses, right? Uh, you have the result of this is because they're so concerned about hate and representation and diversity and inclusion, it makes space for truly like reactionary like literal nazis (laughs) to have their groups on campus too so this space that's meant to protect the campus from these extreme views is actually creating the possibility for them and that becomes part of the horror at the end of the uh, when all of these groups are like almost in unison coming
1: after uh jay right yes right so just that last word on the chair and then cut to connect to that which is a great comment um which is that so They're canceling professor because of his joking thing. So clearly, in my mind, that's just so absurd. It was clearly a joke. And and first of all, the idea that they're coming to the defense of the Jewish students on campus who might have been made uncomfortable is a little bit ludicrous because that's not the atmosphere of campuses today. I don't think not too many people will stand up for the Jewish students uh, in that particular case. But it it was so clearly ludicrous in my mind that, of course, they're making fun of it. But then they went out of their way to make the students in that little outside town hall sound reasonable as if they had a case to be made for this particular episode. So I, I couldn't quite tell, if any, maybe I'm sure they were being deliberately ambiguous and allowing the watcher to decide. But um, you know, I have a stronger feeling on that, as you said, I can be identified, which is I think cancellation, um, except in those unbelievably extreme cases I just mentioned has no, and th- that's none of the cases you hear about in the news essentially, um, has no place on, the, on this campus, uh, on campuses. It's literally inconsistent with the mission of a campus. In my view, at least the one time mission of a campus, which was to be a community that aims to discover truth about the world. And the best way to do that is that the institution itself be a kind of neutral forum and people with different opinions, divergent opinions, people who disagree enter this neutral forum and they play by certain rules of reason and evidence and civility and they argue it out. Right. And, and, and the only way that's going to work is if the institution remains neutral and people with very divergent opinions are, are allowed to play, are allowed to participate in the process. And so the whole idea of silencing a voice, eliminating a person from campus for expressing some opinion on something, even uncomfortable opinions, even opinions that some people might find racist, um, is, is anathema to the mission of the university. So you know, I, I'm, that's the side that I'm on. And I, and I do wanna make it clear if you if you follow the campus news um, campuses are it's well known or documented are are in general i mean you're working at a you know christian affiliated place that's a little different right but the most liberal arts colleges and even larger state universities um, are overwhelmingly dominated by left-leaning faculty and students and progressive that's just the domination that's just a a fact you read statistics such as like 90 percent of professors are registered democrats or something like that right Um, and so most of the headlines, most of the cases you'll read about will be essentially um, the progressivist um, agenda silencing anyone who is seen as disturbing their orthodoxy or mm-hmm. orthodoxies, depending on the cases. I am absolutely opposed to that, um, but I'm also opposed to the much smaller fraction that you'll see where people on the left are um, canceled by, by right-leaning factions. And again, it's much smaller simply because of the fact that campuses are dominated by sort of a, le- a leftist agenda overall. Um, but even just, just today, there was a case um, or I just was reading today about um, a professor in Texas who basically was forced to resign from I think it was a he <laughs> from his position um, because uh, he basically favored Black Lives Matter and it was in Texas and they, there was the, outside the campus, there was an uproar and he got death threats and his family, you know, horrible. I'm against that too. Right? I do mm-hmm. want to make that clear. I'm against the concept of cancellation, whichever direction it comes from. Uh, so, you know, in terms of, if you want to jump in, go ahead, right? Because I can, I, 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 I no, see no. you eager to say something. so I, please.
0: I, I have a note, um, that, a question I want to ask you just to sort of, um, okay. I, I, I have to imagine an audience who sort of when they hear the term um, cancel culture, they reject the the reality of it. Right. And right. so you often hear discourse like there's no such thing as that. It's really just holding people accountable. Um, and so there's this yeah. push, this online push to call it accountability culture and things uh, or something like that. Um, what how would you respond to uh, that position?
1: Fair, Fair enough. You know, and it can be it can sometimes be hard to distinguish severe, serious criticism and challenge to what someone said from the call to cancel the person. Um, uh, and indeed, you know, if you, uh, the National Association of Scholars, which is a, a conservative leaning group, you know, they've documented 180 cases over the last five or six years of cancellation. I don't know what their exact criteria are, but you know, just this, this, in terms of the scope of it, and I know that list is neither complete nor finished, so mm-hmm. that's just some sense of the scope of it. Um, so obviously, um, the freedom of speech requires people can speak and then people can criticize that speech and challenge that speech and maybe even with a lot of passion, right? That's that's allowed. But what you get are, um, it, when, you, when you get things like the following, you get massive online ca- campaigns that call to f- uh, fire the person, mm-hmm. that call to censure or suspend or investigate the person. And when universities Suspend people and undertake investigations of them. That's more than offering critical speech. That is a, is attempting to intimidate and silence. When you get mob scenes, which you do occasionally get on campuses, uh, you know we've been in a pandemic for the last year and a half, so no mob. But you've 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 actually get them online sometimes. But you know there's a number of very prominent cases. Speakers come to campuses and mobs with megaphones, try to drown out the speaker, mm. that's already, that's going into cancellation territory. So when the effort is not merely to criticize what's been said, but to stop the person from saying it, or penalize the person for saying it, or intimidate other people from saying similar things, that's when it's, it's getting into cancellation territory. And again, it's, it's not like there's a hard and fast line. There's gonna be a continuum right. here. Uh, and then, you know, invariably, in some of these cases, the individual, when it becomes an online campaign, you certainly bring the outside world into it as well, which is another part of the problem of the Internet. In uh, this Texas case, apparently, the cancel uh, pressure came, at least according to the article, not from people on campus, but once it got into some very extreme right-wing circles, you know, they started bombarding this person with hate mail and death threats. Right. And so that was coming from outside. And that's cancellation too. But yeah. of course, the boundary between what's on campus and what's off campus is extremely permeable, especially given the internet.
0: And that um, happens and, in this book. Uh, at some point, some of the comments on the the photo of him or the the article about him,
1: most exactly. of many of which are coming off of campus, from off of campus now, right? Indeed, this this you know, it's it's a little deliberately ambiguous here. But the student campaign against this poor guy Jay. Um, It it immediately goes online, and it's it's circulating the world, literally. It goes goes global, and the comments are coming in from everywhere, because that's how it it typically happens. And individuals get doxxed, like their private information gets revealed. So that's cancel culture, and it is real. There's no question that it's real. But it is important to distinguish that from, as as you were mentioning, cases of just, you know, extreme, uh, not extreme, but uh, challenging criticism, including impassioned. Right. Passion criticism, right? You know, I think we have problems like, you know, words like racist, for example, are just ill defined, basically. And it's so easy to label someone a racist. And I, I fear I've been trying to think a little bit more about this. But, you know, that label itself is an expression of cancel culture, because we all agree that racism is terrible and has no place on a, on a campus, right? Uh, so as soon as you apply that label to someone's positions, what you really are trying to do is eliminate that, that voice, right. that person from the campus. And it's very, very problematic because that because the term is so vague, if someone is, I don't know, you know, that maybe they agree with most of what the movement Black Lives Matter wants to do, but a couple of the tactics they disagree with. I, you know, that, that phrase defund the police, for example, there are many people who think, you know, maybe police need reform, but defunding is very extreme. But then that criticism can get labeled as being a racist. Right. And suddenly that's, the, you know, and, and that is not good for anybody. I think that is that's cancellation as opposed to criticism. And I, I wonder if at some point, and I, I, I would say some more things about the label anti-Semite, which can I, I, when it's when it's conveyed, it's carrying the baggage of this should be eliminated. Um, and, you know, certainly many of the anti-Zionists will say it's used as a weapon by Israel supporters to silence them. And maybe in some rare cases it is. I, I happen to think it's more substance. But the point I want to make is these labels are so powerful and dangerous, I would almost start a movement to just stop using words like racist and anti-Semitic and instead say, what is the specific complaint you're making about what the person's saying, right? Like, yeah. um, that's, well, a, that's, that's a side. But part. that's because always... That cancellation, translation and it's, it's, it's real. It's yeah. a real phenomenon.
0: And But that, that advice you give is just good sort of critical thinking advice. I mean, to always sort of like do a little metacognition <laughs> about what you're saying as right. you're, as you're saying it, right? And I think that's a really good, um, a really good idea. Um, and so, uh, I want to get to the, to the idea of anti-Semitism on campus. And, and I, 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 maybe as a, and again, I don't want, I don't mean this to be like a test <laughs> or anything for you, but w- to work into that, um, and to bridge from what you were just talking about. Do you remember the case of I think Stephen Celacia? I think his name was um, from Salata, a few years yeah. ago. This was a University a,
1: of Illinois. Yeah. yeah,
0: there was there was a case of um, him getting a job withdrawn because I believe it was, if I remember correctly, there were some um, anti-Zionist comments uh, that really were at the the heart of of why he was that job was removed from him, right? Um, how, I, I, don't, this is not, I, I don't mean to sound aggressive in asking you the question. I'm just asking your opinion about that and how you frame it in, in what you've been talking about here.
1: So that's an enormous question. Yes, which, I know. You know <laughs> and the, the, the good part about using a specific example is you've got something concrete to work with. The bad part about that is it might obscure the more general issues because you right. get, get caught up in the details of that particular case. So, you know, for example, so he, you know, part of the question was, this is at the University of Illinois, and um, he was all set to start his new job there, and this was in 2014, and then basically a broke. another war broke out between Hamas and Israel, and he tweeted a few things. You called it anti-Zionist, but some of them were, were pretty offensive. Yes. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know if I remember a specific one, so it's always okay to be critical of Zionism or critical state of Israel. That's not a problem. But, you know, when you start expressing hate towards a body of people or when you that's um, fair, that's fair. You know, so so part of the issue there, like one of his tweets was, um, you know, he said Israel or Zionism um, making anti-Semitism honorable since 1948 or something like that, you know. And so we could debate the meaning of that particular thing. But that's that's not a critique of Zion. There's no no policy thing being critiqued there. That's basically uh, I would argue anyway that that one is expressing, you know. Anti-Semitism is honorable because look how evil the Jews are. It's sure. basically what that comes out to, right? Yeah, that's and exactly so that's what, what it sounded like. You need cross a line, right? yeah. And so the the issue, just for your listeners who aren't familiar with it, this was right before he was about to start this job, and then the job offer was rescinded. There was legal debate about whether, in fact, an actual job offer had been offered, like it was like got to that level of thing. But certainly, on the surface of it, it looked like this was a case where they yanked a job offer from him because of the objectional things that he said. Um, and what, what I know, what I would say is if we, we take away that part of it, namely that it happened right before he started the job and there was controversy over what had been offered and whatnot, you know, suppose he's a professor, a tenured professor at campus. I, I, I would defend his right to say those things. I, I he should not be canceled. He should be severely criticized, right? Yes. <laughs> and that's what you, I would argue, right? You should point out why, what he said is offensive and taken to be offensive, but, um, You know, certainly not from a small set of comments that should one lose a job. I mean, even though I those are comments I find heinous and filled with hate myself. But you have to you have to cast a broad net. If you really believe in the principles of free speech and you believe in them because of the mission of the university, then you have to. I would err on the side of allowing a few haters to be at the table than on the side of excluding some people who weren't really haters, but were just saying controversial things. So my, my own free speech net. It's pretty broad and it certainly would allow the people who call themselves anti-zionists people who i consider to be israel haters and even jew haters on campus and there's not a small number of those in my opinion they're allowed to be on campus as long as they don't um openly incite and threaten violence right. i mean you know um and, the, and yeah.
0: that's that's very clarifying um about how you're parsing the term
1: cancel culture when you when you say it you mean something very specific right and that, that's I very clear to. i yes. try to but, you know, th- there's other aspects of it, obviously. So part of cancel culture, um, what fuels it partly is, and I mentioned earlier, it's it's fueled by passion, I think, much more than by intellect. Yes. And that's also, in my view, uh, anathema to the mission of the university. The university is a place where you think things through governed by reason, evidence, and some sort of norms of civility and decorum or something along those lines. Not that I can define those precisely. Yeah. Um, and when... You are drawn by passion. When you move by passion, passion's a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. And when you're being an activist in the world about the causes that matter to you, you know, bring the passion on. You need that passion. It's essential. It's necessary. It can be productive. My argument is it doesn't really belong on a college campus. Campuses should be about study, learning, progress towards truth, and not so much about activism. Yeah. But what we're seeing all part of the same thing is campuses are really hotbeds of activism now where people are moved by their passions. And to me, that's disrupting the real mission of the university. There's this there's, there's time else. Otherwise, you know, you spend four years in college, study deeply, come to understand your phenomenon extremely deeply and spend the rest of your life being an activist. Yeah. Or maybe even while in college, go off campus and participate in the activism, things that matter to you. But I think the mission of the university is to be a scholar and to study and 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 tampen, tampen, dampen your passions and hold off on the activism. Yeah. Activism, after all, implies or requires you have this incredible confidence in the truth of your mission. And the whole point of the university is to say, well, maybe, guess you should be a little more humble. Because you know what? There are people who really disagree here, who are really smart people, who've reached different opinions. So you spend that time really studying the issue and then at some point you know you gotta gotta go out in the world and you decide what it is you're going to get behind but hopefully those years in the university will create people with a kind of intellectual humility i really believe this but i heard a bunch of smart people who disagree and make some good arguments they didn't persuade me but you know what i respect those people yeah and and that that's the kind of humility that i think you know you may then pursue your activism but you're gonna do it in a more humane manner somehow it's going to be better I believe. Um, So that's my concern is that activism has replaced scholarship and that that's what happens when you're on a uh, you know, that's what cancel culture ultimately represents or comes from.
0: And, and it comes across in the book, um, I have to say really well, one of the, in this exaggerated campus that you've created, uh, there literally is no classroom activity represented. In fact, no one even goes to the content of
1: the speech. It's all just sort of meta, right? <laughs> There's always
0: this sort of like uh, talking about talking sort of.
1: Yeah, and, <laughs> and to be fair, there are certainly many schools and many students where serious study and learning is going on. So sure. I don't mean to imply that like, um, all colleges are like this all the time. They're certainly not. But what's dominating the headlines and what's dominating the atmosphere of many campuses is this other thing, which I think is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you know, thank you, by the way, you keep coming back to my book You're an excellent interview. <laughs> I keep forgetting about my book and talking about the more general issues. So, you know, Nevergreen, Pesson.com if you are interested. I should remember that as well. Uh, i tell you some story. I once went on a national TV program to promote a book and talked for 15 minutes and completely forgot to mention the book. Right? So, Available but, uh, on Amazon.com. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but so uh, so in the book itself, there is a little bit of sort of serious scholarship going on. You might have caught it, but it's but it, it has to be done. It's like done in the stacks late at night yes. and nobody can know about it because this campus is not hospita- hospitable to sort of traditional scholarly scholarship. And, right. you know, as it turns out, that scholarship is sort of Jewish related scholarship. So that's the, the Jewish part of the book as well. But yeah. um, but that's part of what's going on. Is like just being a scholar is, is not an acceptable thing. I, I just, I think on campuses, you know, right now, anti-racism is just uh, all the rage on so many campuses. And I've seen calls that, uh, physics departments, you know, have to introduce anti-racism into their, um, curriculum. And, you know, I, I get the good heart that's behind that idea, right? We want to eliminate racism and, and no doubt there's history of discrimination in all sorts of departments, disciplines, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that the physics department has to, you know, devote substantial resources to becoming anti-racist to me that's a problem like i i I think there are i know there are students who want to go to school and study physics yeah you know and by the way there are students of color who want to go to school these schools and study physics and don't necessarily want to do anti-racism 24 7 and that that's sort of what's happening is like that traditional mission of devotion to study learning and truth is now seen as well if you're you're, you know if you're not anti-racist you're a racist so if you're studying physics and not being anti-racist, you're a racist, right? It's it's suddenly that traditional pursuit has been labeled as this evil thing. So on in my book, on my campus, the, like the one person, that's sort of a couple of students and one professor who are doing serious scholarship, but they have to do it late at night when no and nobody can know about it.
0: <laughs> you know, this is this reminds me of one of my not most not my most popular position on in online spaces is that I think much of what I see in kind of mainstream sort of liberal. Politics reminds me very much of what I saw in evangelical spaces, and 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 I remember at, well. I know of stories. Let me just say of uh, where math professors would do Bible studies for ten minutes of a math class, right? And and I felt like that was inappropriate, frankly. And um and, and I don't and I think that there's an interesting parallel to be made there. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, no, so. I am I absolutely think I agree completely. Yeah. Um. um well, you know, you know the general theme again is like when people are all consumed by an ideology that's a problem yeah. <laughs> whatever that ideology is a left ideology a right ideology an evangelical ideology and i and i am all in favor of religion and religious people of course I, yeah, me they're, too they're, 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 Jew, <laughs> I, like, i'm I, not an evangelical <laughs> right go ahead <laughs> right right so you know i i, I want to make sure that that my stance is yeah. but but if you you know um, the mission of the university anyway is to requires an open mindedness to the possibility that your ideology is not the true one, yeah. or is not as all consuming, all all exclusively true as you think it is, yeah. and that it's really valuable and important for people to spend time outside their own I- the ideologies that they're they think they're committed to. So it's a humility, right? Like yeah. all consumed by an ideology is a kind of arrogance, in my view. It's you've got this confidence, you've got it, you've got the whole story, sure. and anyone who doesn't at this point. Isn't merely someone who disagrees, but who's someone who's in the way of your actualizing your ideal worldview, yeah. and therefore you have to cancel them. Yeah. So what it really comes down to is, you know, what I would call epistemic humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Epistemic epistemology, study of knowledge. So epistemic mm-hmm. humility, humility about our ability as knowers, and. and you know that's what I'm in favor of, and that's why Socrates, the greatest philosopher of them all, said his his wisdom consisted in the fact that the the one thing he knows is that he knows nothing. Right, right. <laughs> the world is so uncertainty, and our minds are so small compared to things. Humility, and again, that's that's what's lacking. Cancel culture comes out of arrogance yes. rather than humility.
0: And that also comes up in the book, by the way, just to take it back there one more time. They take that <laughs> to an extreme where they, they literally try to learn nothing, right? And so, um. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, that's um, right. They try, right. Um, you know, um, but that yeah, go
0: on. Real quickly, I know that you have to go uh, in a couple minutes, and so I wanted to uh, make sure we did talk a little bit about kind of Jewish themes. One thing I was really happy to learn about, and I was completely unaware of, is the name of the island um, references a, a real. Um, uh, moment in jewish history uh it's called grand island is the name of the ah. uh, and uh and i was completely unaware of the story right outside uh, near niagara falls uh, around from buffalo there was an, an idea of cre- taking a grand island and creating a jewish homeland out of it in the 19th century and i was completely unaware of that and you're using that of course ironically uh in this book and then there's a hint at some moment in the past where it's just sort of hinted at some sort of Jewish atrocity uh, has happened in the in, in the Jewish presence has been sort of erased from that that island at this point. And so um, that's part of your um, the subtle hints that you have about like anti-Semitism yeah. in the book. But I really appreciated that little insert of history. I was
1: completely unaware of that. Thank you. So, you know, I mentioned those who are interested, you can decode the book Um the book i think um on a deep level is very much about the, the state of the of jews on campus today but i should stress it doesn't mention jews whatsoever the yeah. jews are not present on this campus they're not mentioned the word jewish doesn't exist on this campus right so so anyone who's interested in cancel culture in general can read this whole book and it just the, the jewish angle is completely invisible and i did that deliberately yeah. um uh, you have to really decode it to appreciate that there's this Jewish angle to it. I mentioned that. So those who aren't interested in the the Jewish situation, this book is for you. It's about cancel culture (laughs) and its ideological excesses and the the craziness which is gripping so many campuses. But for those who are interested in the Jewish angle, there's lots of little things that are in there that suggest the Jewish angle. And I I have actually prepared a document, I think you referred to it earlier, called The Secret Jewish Guide to Nevergreen, and it is up on the website of the book. Oh, okay, SM. good. You'll, you can find it there if, if, if you're interested. Like I said, you can read this whole book. In fact, I had someone who's a sort of serious scholar of things Jewish read it, and when I mentioned to him afterwards that, you know, did you catch the Jewish angle, and he completely he went, like, no, he didn't. And then when I shared his document, he was actually very disappointed in himself because he should have caught <laughs> a lot of these things, and he didn't. So my point is... If you don't care about the jews that's not a problem this book's good for you right but if you do care about the jews um and Danny, you mentioned a, a very nice one there um you must have looked that up because i don't think the secret Jewish no i did I, I looked it up you mentioned okay. there like right. something about the
0: island and then i went and looked at the island and then i did a uh, you know i did my googling and then i'm yeah. like wow how did i miss that
1: <laughs> so, this, so just to give your listeners that story very briefly this, the, the island that Nevergreen College is located on is called Grand Island and Grand Island is not an arbitrary name, but that was uh, there was a proposal in the early 19th century by this guy named Mordecai Noah to um, create a homeland for the Jews. What he actually imagined was this is early 19th century so I don't know how many states there were at that point like 13, 20 somewhere in that night like, but um, states were already having religious identities. there was like a Quaker state and I don't know you know different whatever the different Christian denominations are so he thought well why couldn't there be a Jewish state among the United States and this was a very serious proposal he thought he could so he bought this island somewhere near Niagara Falls in Buffalo or something called Grand Island and he, I mean he wrote a, there's, there's a whole literature on this like and he had this whole ceremony he got some press out there basically no Jews came so it didn't it didn't happen but there's still apparently a plaque on the island, Grand Island, that a place that's supposed to be a homeland for the Jews. And so the island that Nevergreen College is located on, formerly the Nevergreen Asylum for the lunatic imbecile and whatever the other 19th right. century objectionable phrases. is. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, the idea that the university could be a hospitable place for Jews. Right. That's a very big 20th century American Jewish idea. Right. Jews yeah. were very at home after early decades of the 20th century where there were quotas limiting Jews on many campuses. Those got relaxed and from you know like the 50s through the 90s was kind of a golden era for Jews on campuses and Jews are very much affiliated with education, higher education and they were very prominent on campuses. But of course now, that's part of you know, the way I see the world, campuses are becoming very inhospitable to Jews and this nevergreen campus has no Jews now, but naming it Grand Island is meant to, to those who catch that little clue, it's meant to sort of call attention to the fact that the university should be hospitable, once was, and should be hospitable to Jews, and the fact that there are no Jews on this island, and you mentioned there's reference to some episode a few years earlier yeah. that seems to be connected to the lack of Jews, and there's yeah. some more clues about that throughout the book. Um, you know, it's, that's the one sense, one of many senses in which the book is sort of secretly about the Jews, and of course that's a second sense of the main character's initial J, yeah. right? Yeah, so sure. Yes. It's a nod to Kafka, but you know what? He's also the Jew, yeah. J for Jew, which is a nod to a novel by Howard Jacobson, a, a very well-known British novelist. He right. wrote a novel called J, just the letter J period, the initial right. J, um, and i borrow a couple of things from that novel as yeah. well here so no. but the point is it's sort of secretly about the jews but yeah. more generally and openly about cancel culture and uh, as a general phenomenon
0: yeah and and i was wondering if the pigs were part of it too but i'll, I'll just uh, <laughs> i don't know yeah, you don't some have p- to
1: give... so, so like, the horror you mentioned the horror, <laughs> the horror, horror yes right? like and you know it's, when i wrote it I, I certainly i wasn't thinking that um uh you know ho- what do I know about horror? I don't like horror movies, um, <laughs> and I don't want to mislead your listeners. But a couple of people, or early readers, sort of mentioned the genre of horror. So basically, this guy, you know, he, he, what he feels like anyway. Uh, and by the way, he's actually an unreliable narrator. I don't know if you picked that up. I, he's, yes. he's an unreliable narrator. And so what he's describing may or may not be what actually happened on this island. And yeah. that's also important, too, because it's part of this idea when you get gripped by an ideology you see things the way you want to you see yes. things in accordance with that ideology and he who's the victim of it is not immune to that problem either right, right. so if he's des- decided to understand something a certain way he's going to interpret everything in that way so anyway he's an unreliable narrator what he basically feels like is that he's being you know chased by a, a, a murderous horde yeah. that that literally want to kill him um and so and and they're on a secluded island and yes. it's you know overnight. <laughs> and by the way, it's Halloween. I don't know if you put that I, on that I yes. hint. So the students are extra crazy on that night, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's got these elements of a horror story. And you know, if you, you there's humor throughout, which actually guess horror stories often do have humor as well. Sure, but, yeah. You know, I didn't feel that it was scary, but a couple of people said they felt that it was a little bit because in the sense in which he's being well, chased. And you But mean, my my point with all of that is um do I think students today are trying to kill the people like and the answer is no right. but not yet is really the answer right? Like when you look at this trajectory when it gets so unhinged, when you see the hatred that fuels the impulse to cancel right? the people, they want to cancel those they consider to be haters but they themselves are consumed by hatred, so right. maybe they are the, the haters here when you see unhinged people consumed by hatred needing to silence something uh, i don't know that physical violence there have been there have been some tussles and fisticuffs you know and mob scenes etc i don't know that physical violence is so far off if this trajectory isn't corrected and so that's the example of satire you know in the book yeah. it really feels like he's being chased by a, a, a murderous horde who want to kill him at least that's what he thinks right right and maybe we're not yet there on campus, but we, but you know the trend is, seems to be in that direction, and that's what I'm trying to highlight. Well, here. and
0: to close up on Kafka, I mean that's exactly why his book works felt so relevant as the 20th century wore on he found a trajectory um even beyond his ability to see what it where it was going to go right and, and that's why we still to this day are drawn to him and i have to say uh, i teach a class on kafka and i've always i'm always looking for other sort of books that kind of work in a kafkian tradition and i really think you've done a great job just at the level of tribute to kafka um beyond everything else you've been talking about i think that you've, you've done a really great job here
1: oh you know that means more than you can imagine especially since there's uh some some idiot put up a negative review on amazon but mostly positive reviews which is good so far but one person put up the review and he said something like kafka would be appalled (laughs) (laughs) no 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 You know, i'm going to refer that person to you because uh you know but but you're absolutely right like you know you he looks prescient when you look back at his own his own writings he and maybe it wasn't his prescient, but what he saw was the essence of what was going on around him. Yeah. And in time, that essence becomes manifest. Yeah. Right? And exactly. So, and I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Kafka, except unfavorably, obviously, but <laughs> you know, this is my sense of what the essence of cancel culture is now. It's, yeah. really, it's unhinged hatred, ultimately yeah. disconnected from reality. It doesn't matter that it's like for a good cause or with good intentions. It's, it's unhinged hatred disconnected from reality. And that is, you know, and and it is labeling divergent opinions as basically toxic, and therefore must be eliminated, right? and that and that's that's not good, and it's hard not to see. The direction that it's going. So maybe 100 years from now, people will be reading this book and saying, it was so Pessinesque. Was Pessinesque. He saw the trajectory or he saw the essence of the thing. You know, God forbid. I, I, I don't want it to go this no, way. My, of course. my hope is that this book, by calling attention to how unhinged and how to control this stuff is, can become a, a weapon or a tool to begin tampering it down and resisting it. So... Join the resistance, as I like to say, <laughs> um, which is also a nod to the book. Yes. Andrew Pesson, thank you so much. This was
0: such a great conversation. I really enjoyed reading the book again. And uh, and I felt like even if you're someone who denies that cancel culture is a real thing, reading a book should be a, 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 a an activity you undertake to kind of think about what's going on the consequences of that denial even right and so i think that there's something really interesting and profound about the book so well
1: thank you for having me this was you're so much fun to talk to um <laughs> you know com if you want to if people want to do find the book and um you know it's pleasure to talk about these things you sent me a few things that we might talk about in events i don't think we got to any of them but that you know it was great it, the for conversation great does what
0: it does nevergreen you know. academentia is the name of the book uh by andrew Pesson. um and uh, i highly recommend it take a take a look at it and uh it'll be a very thought-provoking and enjoyable experience so
1: thank, thank you for having me thanks for the time i
0: appreciate so it so for andrew Pesson my name is danny anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast yeah, yeah.